Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome to the madhouse. Christmas. Welcome to the Madhouse. We are Satan's little helpers. I am Jimmy and that is Joey. Hello. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. <laughs> well, you weren't going to ask me then. Christmas Eve Eve. It is. By the time you're listening to this, it's two days till Christmas. Hooray. <laughs> that looked like a fake smile. We have watched Black Christmas. Yeah. Your Christmas special. Yes. Directed by Bob Clark, written by Roy Moore. Yeah. Regarded as one of the first slashers along with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yep. Bay of Blood and Psycho. Yep. Set a kind of precedent for uh, John Carpenter's Halloween yeah, so a lot of the techniques and shooting techniques that were used for those types of slashes that followed. Uh, the what is it, Who was the director? Bob Clark. Bobby Clark. Bob Clark regarded it more as a psychological horror film rather than a slasher. But it's... Def- is it more of a... Is it a slasher? At the time, there weren't really slashers like this around, so it would have been hard to say at the time. What you were doing, I suppose. It's not a slasher is in the same way, because what well, it isn't, is it? No. There's lots of different ways of killing, and it is yeah. kind of... Uh... It's only one knifing. Yeah. And there's uh, a lot of psychological stuff playing on. Yeah. On here. Made on a, a budget of $620,000, grossing over $4 million. Really? Adjusting for inflation over the years, that is the equivalent of a $3 million budget with a $21 million return. So it's a success? Yeah. Really? At the time. Christ. Never mind. I mean, it's got a cult following, obviously. Right. I don't rate it. All right. Okay. It was something new in the, uh, in 74. Was it? Well, yeah. Yeah. You well, just said for one of the first well, slashes. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I mean, I think Texas Chainsaw is better. Yeah, it and is. Bay of Blood and Psycho. Okay. There's a lot of films called Black Christmas, isn't there? Is there? Yeah, it's quite a few. <laughs> I wasn't sure I was watching the right one. but well, then we I remember, done it. Yeah. I remember <laughs> you saying in the car, you were trying to pronounce sorority, and I thought, oh, yeah, this is, this is right. <laughs> and also, there's one coming out this year called Black Christmas as well. Yeah, there's a remake of this that came out in 2006. Is there really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Is that any good? I haven't seen that one. Who's in that? Uh, there's one person who was in this. Oh, I can't remember who it was, but they returned. The only person to return for the remake. I oh, think I might have it in my notes for later on along here somewhere. Oh, lovely. Yes. Yeah, so, um, they were worried about the name to start off with. People might have thought it was a uh, black exploitation. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> I said I said this to Nat. I said, we're going to watch uh, Black Christmas, so that's all right. And she was like, who's in that? And I was like, obviously, Samuel L. Jackson's in it. <laughs> 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 
So have you got a plot slot? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who's starting me? Oh, do you want to start the timer? Yeah. Uh, you start while I start the timer. <laughs> cool, it's a long one. Settle in with your eggnog. Or whatever your Christmas tip Nearly is. bought us some eggnog, but I've never tried it before, and it's a lot for a bottle for something I might not like. Okay, I tell you what, you want to get your bottle of spiced rum out. You want to get some uh, clementine segments and some cinnamon. And you want to do it like a tequila slammer. Bit of cinnamon okay, yeah. on your hand. Lick that off. Down your spiced rum. Suck on the clementine. <laughs> Christmas. Or... Do uh, George Washington's Christmas drink that's still very popular in the US called a hot toddy. That means something different here. I thought right. it was a hot toddy. A hot toddy. Is that because they drink uh, that in well, Scotland? Well, yeah, because if it's Americans I've heard talking about it, hot toddy, they they pronounce their T's D's, don't they? So I'm yeah. thinking toddy. Yeah. Because I'm uh, a British guy. Right. Anyway. S- settle down in front of the fire. Time is going. Oh, shit. Yeah, We're no, talk- it's not going now. Oh. I was going to do a countdown. Oh, okay. Sorry. What? No, like do your fire setting. You were going to set the scene. I think. All right, first, sit yeah. down in your wing back chair with your bottle of Bucky, bag on, Christmas jumper if you want. I don't know. Whatever. Smoking jacket. Smoking jacket. Light up a fat one. Yeah. Whatever you, whatever you fancy. And whatever you are drinking, it should be out of like a brandy glass. Yeah. Turkey sandwich on the side. Yeah. Someone else is asleep on the sofa on the other side of the room. Yeah, snoring. Tell him to shut up. <laughs> right, here we go. Plot. I'm going. Uh, yes. Go. The film opens at night on a snow-covered college campus. There's a Christmas party underway in one of the sorority houses. Uh, the sorority sisters and many of their boyfriends are inside. Outside in the snow is a point-of-view shot. Illustrates someone looking into the windows. Person's breathing heavily and seems to be a man and this is all we can tell very deep dirty like a pervert yeah that's what it says <sighs> yeah like that yeah there's a lot of that the person prowls around before climbing a rose trellis and entering the house through an attic window he then climbs down through the attic trapdoor and lurks in the upstairs of the house watching the girls downstairs one of the sorority sisters barb receives a phone call from her mother. Barb seems to have been planning on going home over the Christmas holidays, but her mother has made plans to go away with her latest boyfriend. Bastards. Barb calls her mother a gold-plated whore. Great. Well, I just went with bastards. (laughs) And says she'll make other plans for the break. She asks fellow sorority sisters Phyllis and Jess, uh, played by Olivia Hussey, to go skiing with her instead. (laughs) Jess also gets a phone call from her boyfriend, Peter, an aspiring concert pianist. She seems tense and wants to talk to Peter about something important. He's a bit of a prick. She says she'll see him tomorrow at the rehearsal studio. After their boyfriends are ushered out, there's another phone call. Jess answers the phone uh, and announces to all the other girls that it's the Mona. Together they listen to the bizarre phone call which starts out with simple heavy breathing and then escalates into strange ranting and obscene language. Barb gets on the receiver and balls out the caller, firing back with her own obscene comments until the caller suddenly lowers his voice and says, I'm going to kill you. And then he hangs up. I thought it sounded like he was having a wank. Yeah, I think he's in distress. Uh, Maybe he's having a... 
I don't know, a danger wank. If you're in the attic of a sorority sister's place and having a wank, it's always a danger wank. <laughs> a sorority <laughs> sister's named Claire seems more timid than the others. She questions Barb's judgment in provoking an unstable individual or reminds her that a girl from town was raped recently by an unknown assailant. Barb reacts angrily and upsets Claire, who then goes upstairs to pack. Her father is picking her up the next day to take her home for Christmas. Claire finds Claude, the house mother's cat, in her room. Even though the door is closed, she is unaware the killer is watching her from within her closet. In a morbid twist, the psychopath meows like Claude and lures Claire into the closet, where he lunges at her and wraps plastic cleaning bags around her head, smothering her to death. He then carries her body up into the attic and places it in a rocking chair by the window, the plastic bag still over her head. He places a doll in her lap and refers to her as Agnes. Downstairs, the other girls are oblivious to Claire's death and they welcome in the house mother, Mrs. Mack, who's got her shit together, who seems to have just returned from shopping. They present her with a Christmas gift, a frilly nightgown. She pretends to like it but makes sarcastic remarks about it and the girls himself while she is alone. Mrs. Mack goes to the library and seeks a book, Beef for Booze, and hidden inside of it is a bottle of brandy from which she takes a secret drink. Sherry. Yes. Sorry, that got that wrong. It is, it's Sherry, isn't it? She's got not brandy. What did I say? Brandy. It's, we've got brandy written down, but it's Sherry, I think. Oh, okay. She later fishes a bottle out of the toilet tank in her bathroom as well and rinses her mouth with booze you use after brushing her teeth. I love Mrs. Mack. She's an absolute treat. Legend. I mean, obviously a severe alcoholic. She's got booze hidden all over the house. Yeah, and a distracting character in the film if you actually thought about it from a critical point of view. Okay. But I like her. Yeah. The next day, Claire's father comes to collect her, but she is not at the pointed place when he seeks action and he gets twatted in the face by a snowball oh, yeah. <laughs> which I thought was a bit harsh at first and then it turns out hes I didn't really like him I thought he was a bit of a penis yeah. plus the actor actually took that snowball to the face and yeah. the glasses fell off and everything brilliant yeah. When he seeks her at the sorority house, he is shocked by the sexually suggestive posters he finds in her room and also surprised that she has a boy's photo next to her bed <gasps> It's her boyfriend. Uh, Mr. Harrison seems to blame Miss Mack for the permissive attitude in the house. Miss Mack assures him that Claire is a good girl and that she's probably just at one of the fraternity houses visiting Chris. Mr. Harrison offers to drop Mrs. Mack off at the store on his way there. Before they leave, Mrs. Mack is clawed, meowing, but cannot find him. He's in the attic. Jess visits Peter while he is practicing for a very important audition and she breaks some news to him. She is unexpectedly up the duff. Oh, no. Peter thinks it's good news. Hooray. But Jess admits she wants. Uh, she wasn't even going to tell Peter about it. Jess oh. intends to get an abortion. Oh, boo. No, boo, actually. Boo for Peter. Yeah, boo for Peter. F*** what Peter says. Yeah. <laughs> Do what you want, love. Yeah. Peter is adamantly opposed to this and makes an ominous threat against Jess for even considering such a thing as terrible, Jimmy, as abortion. Yeah, God. God forbid she makes her own mind up, Jimmy. I know, a woman with her own mind. Fuck. Doesn't he know it's 74? Dangerous. (laughs) Barb is at the fraternity house with Phil's boyfriend, who is dressed like Santa and taking photos with small children whilst effing and jeffing. 
Do you reckon? Do you think he's a paedophile? No, no. Just, just the way it's written. Barb has a bottle of wine and is getting drunk. She hears one of the children sips of her alcohol. Good girl. Barb is also a bloody good character. Mr. Harrison phones home and assures his wife that they will find Claire. Back at the sorority house, Jess receives another obscene phone call. This one is more elaborate. The killer speaks in several different voices and makes references to Agnes and Billy. He also seems to be speaking in the voices of two adults, presumably the parents of Agnes and Billy. The voices even seem to overlap at times, adding to the unsettling effect. Jess is upset, especially after her confrontation with Peter. Phil and Barb take Mr. Harrison to the police station to report Claire missing. The officer on duty at the desk, Sergeant Nash, endures hostility from Barb about the incident because she's pissed. Sergeant Nash Nash tells Mr. Harrison that he's sure Claire is just somewhere with Chris. Sergeant Nash asks Barb for the phone number at the sorority house and she tells him it's Felatio 20880. It's a new exchange. F.E., she explains. Nash, who apparently does not know the meaning of the word fellatio. (laughs) 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 Fellatio. Well, I sit down and thank her. There we go. Was that the right accent you were going for? Yes. No, I don't think it was. Back at the sorority house, Mrs. Mack tells Jess that Claire is missing, so Jess goes to see Chris while he's at hockey practice. Chris is furious when Jess tells him that the police are not taking it seriously because they think she's shacked up somewhere with him. Peter performs his audition and fails miserably. Distraught about the news Jess has given him, the instructors who listen to the recital are shocked that he cannot seem to hit the right notes and later, in a little bit of a tantrum, he destroys the piano after they've gone. Chris and Jess appear at the police station and Jess... No, Chris angrily lashes out at Sergeant Nash for having a big mouth, meaning his suggestion that Claire was shacked up with him. Can you imagine a man and a woman living together, Jimmy? Oh, <laughs> Crazy. Out of wedlock, f- mental. Lieutenant Fuller overhears and becomes interested in the case. He's already been taking another missing person report from a distraught mother named Mrs. Queef. Queef. <laughs> Close enough. Whose 13-year-old daughter Janice has suddenly disappeared while on her way home from school. Mr. Harrison has dinner with Phil, Barb and Mrs. Mack at the sorority house, but Barb is extremely drunk and launches into a vulgar tirade that ends with her lashing out at the others. Ah, oh, well done, but Barb's great. Yep. Barb feels guilty because she was careless to Claire, and she says the others think her disappearance is Barb's fault. Barb's curt suggestion that Claire might be dead shocks Mr. Harrison and Phil reacts angrily, telling Barb to go to bed. Barb goes upstairs and leaves them alone. Meanwhile, Jess and Chris come back to the house and tell the others about Janice Queef's disappearance. Oh, no, you go. (laughs) A search is underway. That's the first time we've ever overlapped. (laughs) Yeah, we should be pretty good. Uh, A search is underway and Phil and Mr. Harrison join them. Miss Mack tells him that she's leaving for her sister's house and may not be there when they return. Oh, f- shit. <laughs> Christ. Not even had a, oh, we've had one death. Ah, it's Christmas. When Jess leaves, Mrs. Mack packs her bags and calls a cab, but she's distracted by sounds from the attic. The killer lures her into the attic by making sounds like the cat. When Mrs. Mack opens the attic door, he swings a large hook at her, designed to pull things up into the attic crawl space. The hook impales her under her chin and hangs her. Outside, the cabbie becomes impatient and then leaves. 
Nice death, that one. Yep. The extensive search of the park turns up a body. Janice Quaif. Jess rushes back to the house, where she receives another frightening phone call from the killer. Again, he uses multiple voices and reenacts some weird scenario involving naughty Billy and baby Agnes. This time, Jess calls the police to report the obscene phone calls. As she talks to Sergeant Nash, a figure approaches her from behind and startles her. It's Peter, who has been napping in the house while waiting for Jess to return. Wow, Mrs. Mack was killed as well. Eh? Well, how, yeah, how did he get in? Dunno. Tit. Nash does not take Jess's report seriously, although Mr. Harrison is sitting near him in the police station and overhears him talking to Jess about the calls. He and Phil and Chris tell Lieutenant Fuller about it, and Lieutenant Fuller angrily scolds Nash for being so inept. Meanwhile, Peter proposes to Jess he would like to quit the conservatory and marry Jess and be a father to her child. Jess, however, refuses. She does not want to get married or have a child, yet as she has things she wants to accomplish first. Peter becomes hurt and angry, telling Jess that she's ta- talking about killing their baby as if it's like having a wart removed. Jess becomes frightened by his mounting hostilities and tells Peter to leave. Just as Peter is walking out, Phil arrives with Lieutenant Fuller and a phone company rep named Graham, who puts a tap on the house phone. Fuller notices that Peter seemed angry, which obviously means he's a murderer, and he questions Jess about it. He also looks around Claire's room and asks more questions about her. Graham asks if there's another phone in the house, and Fuller tells him that it's a private line belonging to Mrs. Mack, and there have been no obscene phone calls on it, so they don't tap it. Do you know anything about tapping phones? Uh, Why is it called tap? They they tap into the sound. Okay, but I, yeah. I know they attach like a diversion. This, right. It's like we got a headphone jack here that splits splits the out. Yes, same thing. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Why it's called a tap. Fuller tells Jess that he'll be listening in on all of her phone conversations from the station and Graham tells her to keep the caller on the line for as long as possible so that he can trace the call. Fuller has also left an officer in a squad car outside to watch the house. When he leaves, Phil begins crying and tells Jess that she's sure Claire is dead. Tired and emotionally exhausted, she goes to bed and Jess waits for another phone call. Meanwhile, the killer goes into Barb's room and watches her sleeping. Barb, who has asthma, suddenly suffers an attack, and Jess rushes to her aid with an inhaler. Barb tells her that she had a nightmare about a stranger coming into her room. Barb goes back to sleep, and Jess is distracted by a group of Christmas carolers at the front door. What time of night is this? I don't know. It's dark, but it gets dark early Christmas time, doesn't it? Fair enough. The singing masks the sounds of Barb's murder. The killer returns and stabs her to death using a glass uh, unicorn ornament that's near her bed. Yep. I bet that was the used for other things. <laughs> Storytelling. <laughs> the carolers <laughs> are suddenly rushed off by a concerned parent who's just found out about the murder of the little girl in the park. Jess hears the phone ringing, and it's the killer. He wails at her in a strange voice and says, It's just like having a wart removed. Before hanging up, Jess is shocked. These are words she used in private to Peter. Lieutenant Fuller picks up on this, but Jess denies that it has any significant Phil significance. Phil comes back downstairs and gel oh, mother <laughs> You having a stroke? Yeah. 
Phil comes back downstairs and Jess tells her about what just happened. Phil seems to not think the killer could possibly be Peter and neither does Jess, but she's not sure. Peter himself calls then and begs Jess not to kill the baby. This conversation doesn't last long enough to trace either, but Fuller calls to ask Jess about why they were talking about. Jess admits... Sorry. Fuller calls to ask Jess about what they were talking about. <laughs> Jess admits she's pregnant and that Peter objects to an abortion and Fuller seems to think that Peter could be the caller after all. Jess, however, has a revelation. Peter was here at the house with her when one of the phone calls came through, so it couldn't be Peter calling. Fuller is still suspicious and he requests Peter's records from the Dean of Admissions. He goes to the conservatory and finds the piano violently smashed. Jess is convinced that she can now rule Peter out as a suspect and both she and Phil are relieved. They have a brief laugh after they are startled by two bumbling men from town who are out looking for the killer. Phil and Jess go around the house locking all the doors and windows when Phil goes into Barb's room. Just inside the door someone whispers Agnes and the door slams shut. Jess tries to find Phil but the phone rings. It's the killer again. This time Jess keeps him on the phone long enough for Graham to trace the calls. They're coming from 6 Belmont Street. The same address as the sorority house itself. The phone call's coming from inside the house. Yep. Nash radios Fuller with the news and Fuller realises the calls are coming from the house. Uh, the house mother's phone. He tries to radio the policeman parked outside the sorority house but the cop is now dead. His throat slit by the killer. Fuller radios Nash and tells him to call Jess and warn her to get out of there without letting on that the killer is in the house with her. Nash, of course, is a f***ing bumbling idiot. When Jess tells him she's going to go upstairs and get Phil and Barb, Nash admits that the calls are coming from inside the sorority house itself. Tit. Yeah, he's a prick. Yeah. One job, Nash, yeah. your penis. Nash your penis. <laughs> Jess is terrified and she screams out for Phil and Barb over and over again. The house is silent. Instead of leaving, Jess gets a poker from the fireplace and goes upstairs. In Barb's room, she finds the bodies of both Phil and Barb on the bed. From the crack in the door, Jess sees the killer's eye watching her. Agnes, it's me, Billy. Don't tell what we did, he whispers. Jess slams the door on him and runs. Howling in rage and pain, the killer chases after her. With no time to unlock the front door, Jess heads for the cellar. The killer catches her hair as she passes the stairs, but Jess is able to break free and bolt the cellar door behind her just in time. It's f***ing typical because the doors have been open all f night. <laughs> yeah. And then five minutes before this happens, she locks all the doors in the house. Yeah, you suddenly typical. think, there's a murderer around and we've had the doors and windows open all the time, so let's lock them now. Yeah. I'm sure it'll be fine. The killer... Well, where am I? What did you just say? The killer. The killer. Oh, no. Catches her eventually. Head. Oh, eventually the maniac stops pounding on the door, and Jess hears the sounds as if she's going out. The, if he's going out the front door, unsure, she remains in the cellar. Through the basement windows, Jess can see someone prowling around the house. Unable to gain admittance, the figure seems to spot Jess in the cellar. It is Peter. He calls out to her, but Jess ignores him. Peter breaks a window and enters the basement with her. What's the matter, Jess, he asks, as she approaches her. He will not be dissuaded. Outside, Fuller arrives with, an, with other policemen close behind, and they find the patrolman dead in his car. Hearing Jess screaming from the inside the house, they break in. By the time they reach the basement, they find Jess and Peter lying together. They appear to both be dead, but Jess stirs. She has killed Peter with a fire poker. 
A doctor gives Jess a sedative and she is sleeping, although the house is bustling with activity. Fuller, unable to question her hypothesis about the case, convinced that Peter was the killer. Mr. Harrison suddenly goes into shock. The doctor intervenes and wants to take Mr. Harrison to the hospital. Chris leaves with them, and so do the other police officers, leaving Jess alone and unconscious with a guard in front of the house. After they leave, the house is silent and the attic door opens. The bodies of Claire and Mrs. Mack are still up there, unnoticed by anybody yet. The climber... The climber? The killer climbs down out of the attic, saying, Agnes, it's me, Billy. As the camera slowly pulls away from the house, we see the lone police officer on the front porch smoking a cigarette. And above him, two floors, two or three floors up, you can see Claire's head at the window. Yes, you like, can. Nobody's noticed it. Yeah. Nope. Mental. Suddenly the phone begins to ring, just as it did after all the murders that came before the end. And, uh, yeah, that was well over ten minutes. Wow, yeah. I can't believe they didn't f- spot her up at the window. I know. Right there. Well, I didn't until then, but then I didn't have the shot. I wasn't stood on the street. And these are terrible policemen. A... Why haven't they searched the attic yet? Yeah, you would search the whole house. B, Mrs. Mack's shoe fell off when she was pulled up to the attic, so surely someone would have spotted her shoe below the thing. Oh, yeah. And three, why haven't the policemen searched the f***ing <laughs> attic? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Ah, mental. Why don't you uh, tell me about it in Frights and Delights? Okay. Here we go, hanging from our mantelpiece above the raging fire. We've got two stockings, one with frights in, one with delights in. And which stocking (laughs) am I picking from first, Jimmy? Go on, you choose. Uh, I'm going to start off with a little nice delight. Okay. Uh, This was one of Steve Martin's favourite films. As in Steve, as in Steve Martin, Steve Martin. Yeah. Oh. No, just my mate, Steve Martin. <laughs> oh right. Yeah. Uh, he claimed at one point he'd seen it about twenty-seven times, and God knows when that was. He's probably seen it a lot more now. He met um, uh, Olivia Hussey at a party, and she thought he was talking about Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet because she played Juliet, and that when she was fifteen. Very famous. Is it version? Right. When he mentioned that she was in one of her favourite films. She assumed it was that film, but it was actually Black Christmas. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm going to delve into the delight stocking. Okay. Uh, this film holds the honour of being the first seasonal seasonal slasher film, um, a film that takes place during a holiday, uh, in uh, movie history. It would later be followed by Halloween, Friday the 13th, Prom Night, Mother's Day, Graduation Day, My Bloody Valentine, Silent Night, Deadly Night, and April Fool's Day. And The Grinch. Uh, The Grinch. <laughs> Could be scary for kids. Uh, weird faces. Uh, yeah, that's true. Wow. There is, I would have thought that there would have been a horror film based on it before that, even if it was the underground stuff, but... Obviously not. No, I don't think so. Right, I'm shoving my fist down into the fright stocking. Pulling out a big one for you. (laughs) This film was going to make its TV debut on 
Yeah, NBC, in 1978, under a different title for some reason, called Stranger in the House, it was going to air on the 28th of January. However, on the 15th of January that year, two students at Florida State University were murdered, and three other women were attacked near the university. Due to the similarities between the real-life horrors and the horrors portrayed in the film, as well as pleas from Florida locals, the TV screening was cancelled and eventually rearranged to play in May later that year. The man who committed those murders was none other than the notorious serial killer Ted Bundy. Nice. Why don't they bloody show it? Ridiculous. Because loads of college girls had just been murdered and then they're going to go and show a film that about college oh, girls. Come on, that's only a film though, isn't it? He, they didn't go out and kill him. Bundy. <laughs> Bundy. <laughs> right. I'm going to go in. <laughs> I'm going to go in with a uh, another delight. Uh, it's an early example of a largely mainstream film containing the word cut. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this was actually originally cut from the uh, UK release, though. I didn't even notice that word in there. Uh, there yeah, it's, yeah, it's once. Who says that? Um, oh, f- it's either... Oh, it's, 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 Is it Bob? It's, no, it's in the, possibly, or it's when she's having the obscene phone call. He's okay. talking about putting things up her... Oh, okay. Didn't, I didn't business. pick up on that. Didn't. No but they business. cut it from the f- UK one for some reason. Maybe, I don't know, they thought us. It was a naughty word. Yeah, but we couldn't handle it. Yeah. I'll be beeping it out. Well, f- you. I'll beep that <laughs> out as well. <laughs> uh, I'm going in the fright stocking. While filming the weird phone call scenes, the girls actually had director Bob Clark talking shit to them down the phone. So they had something to react to. And later on, the actual phone calls were dubbed in with the voices we hear in the finished product. I hope he had fun with that. I bet they all did. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, I bet, bet there were some decent outtakes. Yeah. That would never surfaced. Yeah. I've got your mum here. She's tied to my chair. And she likes cut, it. I'm going to cut her <laughs> fingertips off stick them in vinegar. Oh, that kind of thing. I went get in a different dark direction. on it. Nah, you got to get dark like, on it. I'm gonna call your mum a nubty head. Yeah, yeah. I've just eaten your goldfish. <laughs> what are you gonna do about it, Bob? <laughs> do you know what? I've drunk your last bit of tequila. No, <laughs> stop it, Jimmy. <laughs> I like the fact you turned it to a bit of a Danny Diamond. <laughs> yeah, it did, didn't it? Drunk all your cheated tequilas. Get out my pub. <laughs> Uh, I think it's your turn. (laughs) Uh, Delight. I'm saying it's Delight. You might say it's a fright. Black Christmas was allegedly inspired by some real-life murders that occurred in Montreal, Quebec. Bloody French Canadian. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was... During the holiday season. This is most likely based on Canadian serial killer Wayne Bodin, who killed three women in Montreal between October 1969 and January 1970. Four months. Is that four months he was active? His fourth known victim was murdered in Calgary, Alberta in May of 1971. Bodin was known as the Vampire Rapist. Do you know why? Uh, Go on. He liked to leave teeth marks on the boobies. Oh, yes. Yeah. I wrote a piece about this and I cannot find it in my notes at all. Oh, yeah, yeah, here we go, yeah. 
Vampire rapist due to his fondness of leaving teeth marks on the boobies of his victims. This fetish would ironically come back to bite him in the arse. <laughs> he uh, killed four women and uh, he was the first person in North America who was sentenced because of evidence that came about from the use of forensic odontological evidence. Oh. Uh, which is bullshit now, we actually know, but I'm guessing he did it. Yeah. Uh, they actually, they use that type of evidence, bringing us in a circle, in Ted Bundy's case, if you've seen uh, the Ted Bundy tape things on Netflix. Is it good? I've not watched it's it. It's really yet. good. Uh, I've just finished uh, The Devil Next Door. Is that good? It's good. Uh, I haven't started that yet. Get that watched. I'll watch that. Episodes. You watch Ted Bundy tapes. Yeah, I think, yeah we'll do that. that Seriously, good. the Ted Bundy tapes, you learn stuff that I never knew about. I didn't even know he'd escaped prison twice. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought he'd done it once. And didn't they? Didn't they like get him out to help other in a court case? Yeah, and yeah, and he climbed out the bloody window. Yeah, yeah. The second escape though is amazing. I'm not going to spoil it for you. Everyone go watch it on Netflix. Okay, I've got. Uh, I'm going to delve into the fright stocking. Uh, pull out a fright. Um. That makes sense. So the vote, the uh, she gets uh, the lovely Olivia, Olivia Hussey gets a dirty phone call, and it's the one about oh, it's like removing a wart. Is that the line? Yeah, something like that. And uh, the caller hangs up, and then she goes, "Oh my god!" And then the uh, copper lieutenant gives her a ring and says, "What was all that about?" Yeah. The guy had already hung up, so he wouldn't have heard her saying, oh, my God, reacting to the phone call. But the phone call was about the abortion. No, the phone call doesn't mention the abortion. It just says uh, Peter's line. And then the caller hangs up and she goes, oh, my God. As a, like, oh, my God, that's what Peter said uh, to me. Okay. But he wouldn't have heard it through the tap because the caller had already hung up. And then he's gone. I remember. what's that, that all about? Peter calls. And talks about the abortion, and then he rings back, and she's like, "You were listening to that?" Oh, yeah, all right, yeah. Is it that? Does it happen before that? As well. Yeah, I think it happens before that. Yeah. That's Frightful. just like a little mistake. Yeah. That sucks. Uh, I'm I'm going into the secret stocking that I'm calling the bullshit stocking. Lovely. Um. Because I saw on a couple of websites that it had been said that this was Elvis Presley's favourite horror film. And it was a tradition for him to watch it every Christmas. Yeah? Yeah. Do you know what year this film was released? Nope. 74. <laughs> Elvis died in 77. Yeah. So that means, if you liked it, he probably watched it three times at Christmas. Oh. I don't think, you kind of think you can traditionally say, I'll watch it every single Christmas. Oh, yeah, that's he's watched it. And didn't he die before Christmas in 77? So that's two times. Yeah, but he watched it twice. every Christmas since it came out. So he watched it twice? Yeah. I've, yeah, That's not enough. a tradition. Well, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I've seen it more than that. <laughs> I don't call it a tradition. Anyway, that one just irked me. Wanted to bring that one out. Um, I've got a fright here. Uh, okay. We are running through time quick, but I'm going to um, give you a little delight, if you don't mind. Yes. 
Um, you already talked about the source of inspiration being the murders by those bastard French Canadian guy. I don't know guy. if he was French Canadian, but it, it it did happen in that area, Quebec. Well, seeing as you have a thing about them, and I'm your mate, I'll back you up and say <laughs> it must have been a French Canadian. <laughs> anyway, another source for inspiration for the film was the urban legend of the babysitter and the man upstairs. Do you know this? Okay. Um, I have the whole little story written out here. I can read you if you like. Yeah. Take a couple of minutes. This is the urban legend called The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs that I have sourced from liveabout.com or liveabout.com. So whether this is just their way they've written it up or this is how it's always told, I don't know. But I'll go for it, okay? Yeah. A married couple were going out for the evening and called in a teenage babysitter to take care of their children. Three children. When she arrived, they told her they probably wouldn't be back until late and that the kids were already asleep, so she didn't need to disturb them. The babysitter starts doing her homework while awaiting a call from her boyfriend. After a while, the phone rings. She answers it, but hears no one on the other end, just silence. Then whoever it is, hangs up. After a few more minutes, the phone rings again. She answers, and this time there's a man on the line who says in a chilling voice, Have you checked the children? (laughs) Click. At first, she thinks it might be the father calling to check up and he got interrupted, so she decides to ignore it. She goes back to her homework, then the phone rings again. Have you checked the children? Says the creepy voice on the other end. Mr Murphy, she asks, but the caller hangs up again. She decides to phone the restaurant where the parents said they'd be dining, but when she asks for Mr Murphy, she's told that he and his wife had left the restaurant 45 minutes earlier. So she calls the police and reports that a stranger has been calling her and hanging up. Has he threatened you, the the dispatcher asks. No, she says. Well, there's nothing we can do about it. You could try reporting a prank call to the phone company. A few minutes go by and she gets another call. Why haven't you checked the children? The voice says. Who is this? She asks. I'm not doing that again. But he hangs up again. She dials 911 again and says, I'm scared. I know he's out there. He's watching me. Have you seen him? The dispatcher asks. She says, no. Well, there isn't much we can do about it, the dispatcher says. The babysitter goes into panic mode and pleads with him to help her. It'll be okay, he says. Give me your number and the street address and if you can keep this guy on the phone for at least a minute, we'll be able to trace the call. What's your name again? Linda, she says. Okay, Linda, if he calls back, we'll do our best to trace the call. But keep calm. Can you do that for me? Yes, she says, and hangs up. She decides to turn the lights down so she can see if anyone's outside. And that's when she gets another call. It's me. The familiar voice says. Why did you turn the lights down? Can you see me? She asks, panicking. Yes, he says after a long pause. Look, you scared me, she says. I'm shaking. Are you happy? Is that what you wanted? No. Then what do you want? She asks. Another long pause. Your blood all over me. She slams the phone down, terrified, almost immediately rings again. Leave me alone, she screams. But it's the dispatcher calling back. His voice is urgent. Linda, we've traced that call. It's coming from another room inside the house. Get out of there now. She tears to the front door, attempting to unlock it and dash outside, only to find the chain at the top still latched. In the time it takes her to unhook unhook it, she sees a door open at the top of the stairs. Light streams from the children's bedroom, revealing the profile of a man standing just inside. She finally gets the door open and bursts outside, only to find a cop standing on the doorstep with his gun drawn. At this point, she's safe, of course, but when they capture the intruder and drag him downstairs in handcuffs, she sees he is covered in blood. And it came to find out that all three children had been murdered upstairs. Whoa! So Did that, they find out who it is? Is it Jimmy Savile? Billy. 
<laughs> no, Jimmy Savile. Gary Glitter? Get... No, it's no, no, no. Shut up. Right, I'm just going to chuck uh, my top five uh, Christmas murders at you. Okay. Uh, brothers David and Roger Cooper plotted to prison... Plotted to poison a woman in a series of Star Wars-inspired coded texts. Samina Iman was having an affair with Roger, but he was desperate for Samina, one of three of his lovers. Christ. <coughs> no, you're right there, boy. Sorry, joking. <laughs> not, to, not to reveal what was going on to his wife. So the only option, of course, was to kill her. After a month of planning and messages exchanged in code, the brothers plotted to kill Samina when she arrived at David's home in Leicester on Christmas Eve looking for Roger. David decided to smother her with a rag-soaked chloroform. A rag-soaked with chloroform, sorry. Her body was found buried in woodland. In a woodland. Shit. Merry Christmas. Number two. Enraged by an apparent argument with his wife, Justin Lee Klopp hacked his wife to death on Christmas Day, hitting her repeatedly in the head with an axe and cutting her throat with a chopper. Klopp had been married to Stephanie for three years when he turned to murder, and after the brutal slaughter, he wrapped her body in a bag, put it in an outbuilding, and took their two children to his parents to celebrate Christmas. Mental, isn't it? Yep. The children, aged five and two, were making the holiday with his parents when he uh, were marking the holiday with his parents when he phoned police to confess to the killing. He later hanged himself in prison. Merry Classic. Christmas. Number three, Bruce Pardo. Uh, no time to react. <laughs> so come in. Yeah, sorry. Number three. <laughs> number three, Bruce Pardo, 45, killed nine people, including his ex-wife, after going on a rampage dressed as Santa Claus with four handguns and a flamethrower at Christmas Eve party. Oh, we've all been there. Yeah. Uh, a recording of a woman caught in the conflict calling police revealed her saying, he's shooting my whole family. My mum's house is on fire. She goes on. We need someone immediately. My daughter's been shot. She was shot in the face. Former aerospace engineer Pardo had recently gone through a bit of divorce with ex-wife Sylvia, who died alongside her parents and three of her four siblings. He later shot himself. Fuck. Number four. Just six years old, John Jean Bennett Ramsey was discovered battered and bludgeoned to death on Christmas Day 1996 in Boulder, Colorado. This is quite a famous one. Uh, she was reported missing by her mother. Patsy told police she would, she had been, uh, she had found a ransom note. During a search of the house, Father John found her lifeless body in the basement. She had been strangled and hit on the head. Her parents and brother Burke were. Pff, that's a terrible name. Bloody Americans. Why don't you just call you kid Twat and be yeah, done with exactly. it? Her brother Twat was cleared <laughs> of an involvement in her death and police have yet to pin the murder on anyone despite an extensive investigation. This is quite a famous thing. I've not heard of that okay, murder. Should, we should probably do a deep dive on that one day. Oh. Number five. Remember it. Yeah. Coming in at number five. Teacher Katie Lot. I'm dumb laughing about talking about people being killed. So insensitive. Katie Locke, 23, was murdered when she went on a first date with Kyle Langdale, the pair who met on a dating website, Plenty of Fish. Oh, no. I've heard of that. Oh, have you? Okay. Never been on it. All right. Probably. Well, you're married. Yeah. Uh, went on a date in London before going back to the four-star Theobald's Park Hotel in Hertfordshire, where he murdered her. Langdale, a trainee lawyer, strangled Katie 
and the cherry on the cake, and then had sex with her corpse. Damn. He then took pictures and wrapped her body in bed sheets and a duvet and dumped it in the bushes at the back of the hotel. She was found on Christmas Eve. And it was only nine months before the murder that Langdale had told a community psychiatric nurse that he wanted to cut a girl's throat. Katie was unaware that Langdale had spent time in a psychiatric hospital and was serving a suspended sentence for telling the nurses six fantasies. Uh, the violent fantasist described himself as an ordinary decent human on Facebook. He was sentenced to life in prison for the killing, which took place in 2015. So there you go. How did I not hear about that? I know. Like, the the famous one, I could understand because it was a different country. I might not have heard about it, but that one was, what, four years ago? Yeah. 45-minute uh, drive away? Yeah. Hour's drive away? Uh, about an hour and a half. Hour and a half. <laughs> Tomato, tomato. Well. <laughs> so there you go. The, uh, the 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 murder baubles on my Christmas tree. <laughs> nice. <laughs> they were good. Uh, remember the one you were going to do a deep dive on? Yeah. We'll talk about it again. This is a Christmas special, right? Yes. So it doesn't matter if we run over time nah. quite a bit. Good, because we are balls deep into this thing, yes. but not even halfway finished. Right. <laughs> So oh, that came from nowhere. <laughs> What's up next? <sighs> I've got some more. Oh, shit. Yeah. We're not done with Frights and Delights, what I'm talking about. F- beautiful. So uh, I would go pour yourself another drink. Okay. Uh, not you. Oh. Listeners, you can pour yourself <laughs> another drink if you want. Uh, uh, but yeah, listeners, put some more coal on the fire. Get yourself another drink. Pull a cracker. Give that guy snoring on the sofa another nudge. Pull your own cracker <laughs> if you want. <laughs> So this film was about teens, right? <laughs> yes. But not a single person playing a teenager in this film was actually a teenager at the time of filming. What? I know that is usually some... Well, you usually. Sometimes that's the way it's done. Yeah. Maybe someone who's 22 will play an 18-year-old. It's fine. Yeah. Kia Dullia, who played uh, Peter, was the oldest who was playing a teen. Do you yes. want to have a guess at how old he might have been? 64. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. But I... 49. No. You're just ruining my actual answer now because it's not going to seem as shocking. 32. 38. 38? <laughs> yeah. Christ, he's playing someone basically 20 years younger. Yeah. The youngest performer was uh, Lynn Griffin, who was 22. Another... She wasn't in it for very long, though, was she? No. Nah. Another little delight. Black Christmas was written as a novel in 1976 after the film was released. And that novel is now very rare and no longer in print. So I couldn't find a copy for sale just to have a look at. wasn't going to buy it. Yeah, Couldn't find a price. But the novel apparently had way more detail about the characters and the plot had been expanded. Okay. Uh, so if anyone has that book, please type it all out and send us a copy. Don't send us a real copy. Not that cheeky. Just PDF. Just, yeah. Scan it on, send it over. Yeah. I think I'm done for Frights and Delights. Okay. What's next? Oh, yeah. We're going to crack another can open, apparently, and move on over to Master of the Macabre. Master of the Macabre. 
Welcome to our Master of the Macabre section where we are going to pick our master or mistress of the macabre for this film and probably end up talking about our few runner-ups. Okay. What are you going on with? What am I going on with, boy? Wow. I'm going to start. I'm going to just chuck out a runner-up. Okay. Margot Kidder, who played Barb. Yes. Lovely. Very lovely. Pissed up. Not yeah. not lovely because she's pissed up, but you got you got like a girl who can have a take a drink <laughs> drink yeah drink she can have a drink and she can uh, give as good as she gets in terms of uh, bullshit on the phone bit feisty yeah and she tells was... it as it is yeah and uh, she was obviously Lois Lane shit really yeah yeah Superman Superman two. No way. Yeah. I did not know that. Uh, she was in the Amityville horror as yep. well. Yeah. Um, gosh, she died last year. No way. Yeah, 69. <laughs> I'm right, thanks. Let's talk about this first. <laughs> All right. <okay. laughs> uh, wow, I had no idea she died. Yeah, I was trying to picture her through the film. Where the f*** was Superman? <laughs> exactly. Uh, who the f*** she was. And then when I just clicked on her name there, it was like, oh, yeah, f- of course, it's f- Lois Lane. Yeah, see, I recognised uh, Olivia Hussey. Oh, okay. <laughs> was she was she in something specific you're thinking of? Yeah, I know her from something, yeah. <laughs> what? She was in uh, It. Yeah, sorry, I thought you were... The way you said, oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought like, there was some uh, sex tape released or something oh. at some point that I didn't know about. No, she was in It. She yeah. played Bill Denver's wife. Yeah. And she Still got that accent. stupid accent. I mean, that is her accent. Oh, yeah, I quite like that accent. Do you? Yeah, it did something for me that I could not explain. I'm pretty sure you could explain it. <laughs> <laughs> I won't, though. Oh, it's because she's f***ing Argentinian. She was born in Buenos Aires. What? Buenos Aires. I was watching the film trying to figure out if she was English or American or Anglo-American of some sort. Oh, no. She was born in Buenos Aires. Is it Argentina? Yeah. Okay. That's why she's got that weird... Right. Sort of... That that accent that you can't peg. Yeah, it was... It's odd. Uh, uh, Right, I've got... Are you naming anyone else? Um no, oh Mrs Mac. She was good. Yeah, she was like good. So is Barb your choice? No, Barb isn't my choice. Okay, no. You got another runner-up though, Mrs Mac. Mrs Mac. That was a uh, Mrs Mac's Waldman. not a runner-up. She's more. She's just an honourable mention. Yeah, because she was amusing. She's Ma- uh, is it Marion Waldman? Yeah, Mrs Mac. And I like the way she's got all her booze in and about the place. Yeah, I, like... I mean that's a serious issue. That is a serious sign of alcoholism when you're hiding booze around. Yeah, I watched this and then told Sam that I might try and hide booze and just be drunk for a week and see if I can get away with it without being noticed. Uh, is that a bad sign? Uh, no, it's fun. I you do it. It does annoy the people around you, but you know, fuck what, if you're secretly drinking. You're not secretly it. drinking, just that you're drunk all the time. No, I'm going to secretly be tipsy for a week. Right, you just got to find that happy medium. Yeah. It's fine. I'll be all right, Jimmy. You'll... I'll do it over Christmas when I'm not at work. Less people yeah. in danger then. Yeah. So, uh, But yeah, Marion Wallman. Uh, Mrs. Mack was fed up with everyone's shit as someone should be in her position, basically. 
years of dealing with horny teenagers and parents trying to tell you how to do your job. Really? Is that is that is that is she fed up with it? Is she? Oh yeah, she she's coping with it in the most relatable way of hiding booze everywhere. Oh, I <laughs> but I could believe her it. exasperation while she's mu- she's mutters to herself quite a bit. And if you have ever worked in customer services, as I have, I worked in retail for like six painful years. The muttering, the fingers up. She was doing fingers up to Oh yeah, Phil of course she was. When he yeah. wasn't looking. Yeah. And she's muttering about the girls, she's muttering about the parents. If you listen to what she's saying, she's uh I think she likes a job, but there's everyone has those shit parts of their job. She's not really caring if they notice that they mutter either as well because you get sick of being treated like a doormat. Yeah. I guess. Uh I mean Phil was being a bit of a condescending wanker to it was a Phil, wasn't it? Yeah. She's the people's hero in this story. <laughs> having a go at the arseholes and having a drink. Sells it like someone who's been there. So she, I had her as a honourable mention. Yeah, okay. Who have you got for the top spot? Top spot is, for me, Olivia Hussey. Yes, that's who I got. Yeah. Probably deserves it outright. Yeah. For her performance decent pro at a young age like I said earlier she was Juliet in Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet at 15 years old in like 1968-69 ish when that film came out in this she plays a young girl dealing with an unwanted pregnancy and all the other shit that goes down in this film and yeah if we genuinely give these awards out for the best performance I think she should have it Yes, but an extremely honourable mention to Mrs. Mack People's hero. Yeah, definitely. Well, there we go. Olivia Hussey. Yep, she's still alive. Mistress so. of the macabre. We've done a lot of mistresses of the macabre of late. We do seem to have, but we've picked female heavy films. That's true, yeah. Um, so, send her a fake medal in the post that doesn't exist again. Well, I know, um, and they're shaped like penises. I don't think she'd appreciate that. Are they? They can be if they want to be. Uh, I think you've said that before. Yep. So I the think big golden phallus. Hers should be in the shape of a unicorn. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Do with that what you will. <laughs> and we'll uh, see you over in the madhouse rating system. The madhouse rating system. Right. Let's unwrap that last present that's underneath the Christmas tree. That is, oh, it is the section, the Madhouse rating system. First up, we got that tension and we got that suspense. Yeah, we've got both of them (laughs) in this film. And the best tool utilised in Black Christmas is the fact that Billy the Killer, we're calling him Billy, by the way, doesn't really have a look with Halloween, we have an iconic-looking killer. Nightmare on Elm Street, we have an iconic-looking killer. In Black Christmas, we never really see the killer. We see what he sees instead. Yeah, POV. And it's a brilliant use of that POV camera work, and it allows us to know what the killer's doing while concealing his identity, so we can still think it might be Peter. Yeah, I think that was the first. I think it was first used in a film called Peeping Tom. Yeah, where the killer where you saw it for the point of view of the killer 
And it's used in um, Halloween as well, 1978. Yes, yeah. The effect from this is the film's best source of suspense in a way. It keeps the mystery going for us all as we guess and wonder about his identity. Also makes you uneasy about the killer because he is an unknown. We watch from his eyes as he climbs into the attic and everything else he does. So I really like the decision to keep him as this kind of boogeyman hiding in the attic rather than a monster we can identify. I like the fact that he's living in the attic. Yep. Or is he living in the attic or has he just got into the attic? I think he's got into got it. Got in into the, the attic and but then he's stayed there over the course right. of the murder spree. It annoys me that we don't find out who the killer is. Yeah. Do I don't mind mean? a bit of ambiguity. Nah, I, I need it to be. I need it to be done. All we see of his really is the uh, his eyeball. Yeah, you see his eyeball looking through the, the door, and you just see his hands wildly flailing. Yeah, yeah. We never really, we never. There's it's a lot of loose ends. Yeah, I think. Also, the I I like that they chucked that uh, dead child in the park bit to throw us off. Yeah, the, and the dead child was uh, probably chucked. In the park. <laughs> Probably. But it, that creates its tension within the town, taking the tension outside of the sorority house. Yeah. But the town's now involved in this thing that's probably not related to the sorority house killing, no. but it it throws us off. And there was a rape as well. What's going on? Where do they live? Yeah, this town's shit. Uh, and none of these uh, loose ends are tied up. Cops are shit then, obviously. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fucking hell. Don't search the attic. Of course. But the uh, the Dick. boyfriend... He's yeah, no, it was him, way. obviously. It must have been. So that's the guy she's sleeping with. It's him. Yeah. Peter being a suspect, though, is a nice touch of suspense because we still think it could be Peter literally right up until the end. Yeah, because I think there's a couple of like little bits where you see, sort of see the killer and he's got that sort of hair that Peter's got. Yeah, like a little flick of it. And uh, Peter conveniently having a nap when Mrs. Matt was killed. Yeah. Kind of lets us think it might be him. Nothing. I mean, Jess has got no idea that Matt's just been killed, so that's purely for us. Yeah. Um, and we think it could be him right up until the end when the phone rings again and he starts climbing down from the attic or whatever. And that's when the realisation hits that Billy is still in the house and Peter was innocent the whole time. Yeah. Ugh. Uh, uh, apart from that kind of tension, there's some big character tension that's pretty awesome because, uh, well, between Jess and Peter, because of the whole abortion subplot, so it adds another dynamic that didn't need to be there. Adds it to the film, and it's just one of the many things that the team did as a whole to make this film more than just a straightforward one-plot story. Yeah. So that's all i got for tension and suspense. We just need to decide on a star, or not a star, or half a star. Three-quarters of a star. Ten-eighths. <laughs> I don't know. How you can't have ten eighths? That's fucking ridiculous. Eight tenths. Eight tenths. Um, I I don't know. I don't know. What Just do remember reckon? though, we have the rule of judging it as a film as the, of the time. Yeah. Okay. As the time. Okay. Uh. Yeah, it's got to have a star then, hasn't it? I think I'd give it a star. Okay. I don't think it's. Yeah, I think I'd give it a star. All right, Uno. Starro. Next up, we have gore and visual effects. Yep. Director Bob Clark said the original script called for more gore and more graphic detail. However, he decided he preferred a more toned-down approach, and writer Roy Moore agreed and adjusted the script accordingly. No, they were wrong. Jimmy says they were wrong. Should have been more. 
also the time of year they filmed would also usually have seen snowfall. In fact, during filming, the temperatures dropped to around minus 12 degrees Celsius, but still no snow. So they were forced to use fake snow, which came in the form of a foam-like substance provided by the fire service as a late standing. So there you go, thinking on the uh, on the spot. Yeah. So that's also that's always good, but still, it's just fake snow. It's not going to win it a star. Yeah, I t- I still think the gore could have been better. We didn't see the hook going into Mrs. Mac's face. No, nope. that would have been nice. Yep. We didn't really see Barb getting uh, stabbed with the unicorn. Nope, that was a bit of blood. Just sort of that bright red blood everywhere. Yeah, but that was a bit of a psycho homage, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, who else bit the dust? Phil. How did she die? I have no idea. Big, well, they put her in the bed with uh, Barb, didn't they? Can't remember how she died. Yes. Um, I just wrote the deaths uh, themselves are brutal, but subtle in execution. <laughs> yes, subtle in execution. Meaning the gore is not a massive part of this film. There's yeah. a suffocation, which is better at showing the aftermath of the attack. Because yeah. you see the victim in the attic rocking chair with the death stare. That's quite good. It's not very gory, but it's a bit... Uh, Unsettling. Yeah, and you can see the bag there. Uh, in a rocking chair with a desk there. That's a good album title. <laughs> for, your, for your acoustic album. <laughs> in a rocking chair with a desk there. That's uh, a country vibe to that album, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Mack were hooked through her head. pretty sweet. But like you said, you don't really see it. Uh, as far as uh, visual effects go, the point of view shots that the killer had were done with a harness that attached the camera to the actor. These days you just whack a GoPro on and be sorted, but in the 70s, cameras were basically the size of small cars. <laughs> so props to the guy who managed to figure that one out, props to the guy who managed to carry it up the trellis. Yeah, fair play. But, you know, not much to talk about. Gore visual effects. Maybe no. half a star. I don't even think a star. Unless you want to give it half a star for the point of view carrying of the camera. Quarter of a star? Oh, that's rogue. <laughs> that's rogue, isn't it? Yeah, right, half a star then, if you want. Half, give it half. Yeah, okay. Right. One and a half out of two. One and a half. Okay, next up is the performance. Well, I, I thought it was a good performance. It's fairly big names in it, isn't there? Yeah, it's a great showing of awesome actors and actresses in Black Christmas who all did awesome jobs, not just in this film, but others too. Some of we've already talked about. Uh, Olivia Hussey, we said, was in It. 1990. Yeah, brief. John brief, Saxon went on to be a Nightmare on Elm Street in 1984. Yes. Uh, playing a cop again. cast. Art Hinkle, awesome name, was in Invasion of the Body Snatchers in 78. Nice. And Margot Kidder uh, had been in uh, Brian De Palma's Sisters before Black Christmas and went on to star in, as you said earlier, The Amityville Horror in 79. And That's Lois classic. Lane. And Lois Lane. She was Lois Lane, It's yeah. not a horror film. Well, where? Maybe it is. Aliens come down from space, start saving people all willy-nilly. Yeah, sci-fi, isn't it? Amazing classics in their repertoire, so it's no surprise we've got an overall good performance in Black Christmas, especially some well-handled acting around the subject of abortion, which in the 70s was a taboo subject. Yeah. Um, Mrs. Mack was in a quite an interesting... Ooh, film see 1974 that. called that? Deranged Confessions of a Necrophile. <laughs> really? Yeah. 
A deranged rural farmer becomes a grave robber and murders after the death of his possessive mother, whose corpse he keeps, among others, as his companion in a decaying farmhouse. Wow, have you seen that? I have not seen that, no. Sounds nice. Yeah, right up my street, that is. <laughs> right, yeah. performance. Uh, star or no star? I want to mention oh. the voice actor who did Billy. Okay. Because we've covered a couple of examples in our previous episodes of voice actors or actors going to extreme lengths to get the right sound for the part. The most notable we've covered is from The Exorcist. Yeah. With the voice actor, who was a recovering alcoholic, tied herself to a chair and drank whiskey. Yeah. Well, actor well Nick Mancuso stood on his head while doing the few lines that the killer Billy had to do. Stood on his head? Calls. Yeah, apparently this compressed the thorax in the neck and helped him to have a raspy voice. Fucking hell. I'm guessing they were his words. And in slasher films with teen girls, all the girls are basically portrayed as just teen girls who are picked off one by one. In Black Christmas, every girl's character is different. They're all different. They're all dealing with different life problems and there's a personality on every one of them that can be identified with. We all know a Bob. We all know a Jess or a Mrs. Mac. And I think if it wasn't for the great performances, those personalities wouldn't have shown through. And the film would have lost a significant amount, significant amount of depth because of it. Yeah. So I would give it a star if you're asking me. Yeah. I'm saying a star. Two and a half out of five then, so far. Lovely. Next up is musical score and sound effects. The uh, composition in this film was sorted by composer Carl Zitra, and it sounds like he had a lot of fun with it. Did you see any of, any of this stuff? No. I don't even... I can't even remember the f- musical score. Well, it was... It was good. I'm not going to hum it. I'll sing it for you. It was good. Was it? Well, because yeah. it's like that other film that we watched, and I I can't remember it either. So I've... some of them are iconic and stand out purposefully, and some of them do their job in a different way. Right. Okay. Go on. Explain. Uh, well, he just used his piano in some very imaginative ways. So you may have noticed, but not remember <laughs> some odd noises in the soundtrack that worked really well. Yeah. But were hard to put your finger on. Yeah. That's because he tied forks, combs, and knives to his piano strings inside his piano to create warped sounds as the strings' usual vibration was kind of influenced by the foreign material strapped to him. That's clever. Uh, He would also put pressure on the tape in the tape recorder as sounds were being recorded, so the tape had a distorted sound to it on the playback because the reels were made to turn slower. Nice. It's these kind of things that I, I really like finding... Because it kind of just made the soundtrack the same, but without these extra added enhancements, and it would have been good. Yeah. But he just cared, and he sat, and he thought about ways to make it the best it could be, and he pissed around with some stuff, which is always really fun to do. So generally, and seemed to have enjoyed himself. Uh, track one on the release of the soundtrack is called Silent Night. Track two is called Evil Night, which together make the original working title for the film. Lovely. Silent Night, Evil Night. Nice touch there, yeah. Your guess for this film was Silent Night, Deadly Night. Yes, it was. You were nearly close yeah. to guessing the working title. Yeah. Uh, the creepy phone calls straight from the depths of hell. The killer is on the phone throughout the film, and the sound work on those calls is insanely well done. There were so many noises coming from one man. 
It sounds like he's just battling his own demons. At one point, it seemed to me he was asking for help, like he wanted to stop. Maybe I'm wrong, but the fact that you can read into these things that are said in these quick calls is testament not just to the sound crew, but to whoever wrote those calls. They were like a masterclass in mixing as well, because if the layers that that are in them uh, were not being obvious to hear, but if if you listen, there are layers. Like you mentioned earlier, there's bits that seem to go over each other. Yes. It's just very well done. So I I want to give it one for if it was even if it was just for effort, for musical score and sound effects. Star for effort. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it was a good composition as well, but yeah, yeah okay fair enough. But that's uh, three and a half. Three and a half. Is yeah. that three and a half? That is three and a half. Yes, three and a half out of five. Okay. Now it's just overall experience. I'm taking your job there. The last. <sighs> it's fine. I need the prompting. It's the last Brussels sprout on the plate. It's overall experience. Ah, did this have enough gravy on for you? No, it didn't. Not enough. No. No. Did it need some <sighs> stuffing? Or did yes. it have too much stuffing? It didn't have enough stuffing. I, it, for me, I didn't really enjoy it. It's You're good. the type of guy who likes your roast beef to bleed. Yes. Yes, I want it a bit bloody. Yeah. I want it a bit bloody and uh, wriggling about, uh, trying to get away, screaming. Uh, and that film didn't didn't do it for me. Was it was it okay enough for you to leave it as it is? It's obviously not good enough to give it a star. But if you hate it, you can take one away. I'm not. No, I don't think I'm not going to take a star away from it because I think it's earned it in those little sections. But yep. I, overall, it's not my favourite seasonal horror film. Okay. That all makes sense to me. What are you saying? I'm close to giving it a half star to make it a four out of five because I feel like, but then three and a half, it's reasonable as well. Yeah. Leave it there. Yeah. All right. Lovely, lovely. Stars out of five. Not our best, not our worst. (laughs) But it is the end of the podcast. (laughs) And it's time for you to go top up your drink again. Finally wake up that person asleep on the sofa. And uh, just go and open some presents under the tree. No one will notice. Well, we're going to have a quick guess at the next film for the new year. Yeah, I was about that. I was getting around to that, obviously. Right, I, sorry. <laughs> I wasn't really. I'd completely forgotten. <laughs> as I do every week. I need a prompting card for this. It's because I hate it. It's <laughs> <laughs> too much tension. Go on, then. Right, so ready I was, to get it wrong. I didn't know. I didn't know where to go. I was going to go quite contemporary because I watched some really good films recently that have come out in the last few years. Yeah, but then I thought, ah, actually, no. I'm going to do a classic. Perfection think, was contemporary, wasn't it? So, yep. Yeah, so I'm going to do a, a kind of a. Cl- I think it's a classic. It's a cult classic. I think. Okay. All right. Hold on. I'm not getting this one. It's going to be some obscure thing. It's not obscure. Down the back it's of not the obscure. It's quite, okay. it's quite famous. An unfaithful wife encounters the zombie of her dead lover. The demonic Cenobites are p- pursuing him after he escaped the sadomasochistic underworld. Well, I know I should know this. Cen- Cenobites is, a, is the kicker. Is it called Cenobites? No. but I know the word Cenobites, but it's not coming to me. God, I hate this part of the show. Do you want to have a pop? No, because I'm going to 
No, just tell me. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Clive Barker's 1987 classic Hellraiser. Oh, Hellraiser. I have not seen that for a very, 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 very long time because I remember not liking it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You don't like it? Uh, It was a late night child finding the VHS job. Oh, you were a child or yes. another child? No, I was a child. Right, okay. Oh, and I okay. haven't seen it since then. Oh, okay, this is good then. You're an adult now. I, well, yeah, some <laughs> would say. Of. Biologically, I've made it. <laughs> Still waiting for the brain department. Yeah. Yeah, no, this is a Naily Head Scary Man. Thanks for that. <laughs> Pinhead. <laughs> Naily Head. <laughs> Lovely. We are really done now. Yes. Right. Well, okay. Everyone. Merry have Christmas. A very, very, very good Christmas. Have a watch of Hellraiser for the old Nearly Ed. Uh, um, in the meantime, check us out on Facebook and Instagram. And we are off to go and down a bottle of eggnog. Oh, the egg. Oh, the eggnog. Finally taste what it see what it sees like. Finally taste what it tastes like. Shit. I'm expecting it will, yes. Can't put egg in your booze. In your nog. Fental. What? Egg in your nog. Egg in your nog. No, I don't want any egg in my nog, thanks. I'll settle with a dry cider. Okay, so grab yourself cider. Someone grab some eggnog. I'm probably going to have Baileys when I get home. There, I said it. <laughs> I like Baileys. Someone grab my cracker. <laughs> no one grabs his cracker he just gets way too excited about it and we will see you next time for our next episode we will be joined by Naily Head it's Hellraiser yeah you're <laughs> <Flish> you <laughs> <Flish> you <laughs>